60 years ago, Dr. King was celebrating his birthday just after an important meeting. Black ministers from across the South had come to see him in Atlanta to talk about how they could work together to end segregation. They created the group that would become the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was an incredibly important moment. The connections and relationships formed then made the rest of the civil rights movement possible. You could argue it made Barack Obama's presidency possible. As a history lover, I'm always looking for history repeating itself. And after Donald Trump was elected, I thought there could be another moment when a new movement began. That's why I went to Nashville, and that's how this episode came about. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. What do we do now? That's what a lot of people were thinking after the election. People Trump has alienated by, say, appointing a White House strategist who white nationalists see as an advocate, by nominating an attorney general who's called the NAACP un-American, also by proposing to register Muslims, cut off funding to sanctuary cities, and deport millions of undocumented immigrants. The wide array of people threatened by those proposals had one major pre-scheduled chance to get together as a group and plan before Trump became president the National Immigrant Integration Conference. The conference is a really critical moment for the movement. It's the first time that this full movement has gathered since the election and likely the last before inauguration. Tara Rugveers with the National Partnership for New Americans, a coalition of the biggest immigrant organizations in the U.S. They put these conferences on since 2009. Back then, it was an unprecedented gathering of diverse organizations that had never come together in one place before. This year's conference was in the South for the first time and was hosted by Stephanie Tietro and the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. We've been overwhelmed by the number of people who want to get involved. We've had flowers delivered to our office nearly every week. Most of the volunteers who are here have never been involved with our organization before. After the election, more and more people planned to attend the conference. And that's how I found myself in a big, fancy hotel around the corner from the Country Music Hall of Fame, in a blue city and a red state. The conference looked like a conference, with speeches in vast ballrooms, people wearing name tags, carrying the same tote bags, making polite conversation. These were the lawyers, organizers, funders, advocates, and officials who work on immigration. They skewed toward the more privileged, but several said that was what motivated them to get involved. Like Tara Rugveer, she's the daughter of South Indian doctors, raised mostly in the Midwest, and was a Harvard undergrad with an offer to work at a hedge fund when she did a thesis about housing evictions. And I was having conversations with these really poor folks, and they were telling me about the 12,000 they have in a year in Social Security benefits or something. And I was thinking about the you know 100,000 that I was about to go make per year as a 22-year-old with no skills in the world just by lack of circumstance, and I couldn't, like, that was not a reality that was acceptable to me. It takes money and connections and skills to make change, and many of the people at this conference had those things. So I asked them to meet me away from the speeches and panel discussions in a cold conference room with the wind howling outside, and I asked them what their plans are, how they would protect people threatened by Trump's proposals. 
What follows is a selection of what I heard, divided into categories. The short-term plans, the mid-term plans, the long-term plans, and finally, the ultra-long-term plans. Here we go. The short-term plans. What has to happen first? I think that we need to be prepared for the worst, and that's what we're doing right now. Cristina Jimenez is planning for undocumented people to have to hide, which is ironic from her. She's credited with starting the movement of students coming out as undocumented. She was one of the first to come out. It was transformative for me because I like stopped feeling afraid about it. And then there was a sense of almost like pride about, yeah, this is who I am. And coming out as undocumented was an important strategy. Christina's group, United We Dream, successfully pushed President Obama to defer deportation for undocumented students and their parents. But Christina doesn't think those tactics are going to work anymore. She has her network of nationwide organizers asking schools, churches, cities, and anyone else they can think of to declare themselves safe spaces for immigrants who may need protection. I think under the Obama years, I built a spirit of, like, if they come after my family, like, we will fight for it and we will win, right? Like, we would, like, we will organize, we will do, you know, we will lead our strategies and we will win. And now I'm feeling like I'm not sure that I can say that. Even with, like, having a movement and having organizing like, there's for the first time, like, a small voice that doubts inside of me, like, oh, like, I don't know if that, that could work. And so I think for the first time, I feel genuinely afraid of what could happen. I mean, has it gotten to the point where you're imagining, like, underground railroad kind of stuff, or is that dramatic? No, I mean, I think we don't, I think that we, I think it could get there. I think, I mean... <laughs> I think it can get there. So safe spaces, that's the short-term plan for undocumented immigrants. I didn't hear a clear-cut plan, though, for the other group that might be quickly targeted by the new administration, Muslim Americans. Kamal Esaheb was still trying to educate people at the conference about the danger of a Muslim registry. Kamal's the director of policy and advocacy at the National Immigration Law Center. He and his family were living in New York on 9-11 and were forced to register as Muslim. When we met, he was already weary from telling his story. So it's very painful to me, very painful, to hear politicians talk about we're going to have a Muslim registry. It's not something I've forgotten, but it is something that I thought we would move beyond, that our country, my country, would move beyond. But to move beyond it, we have to really know what it is. So he told the story again. You were with your brother and your father, right, in that line? What was the line like? I thought it was cold. I thought it was long. It was early in the morning. So the line was to get into the building. And you go through security, and then, you know, you go through an elevator. And not everybody's going in at once. I mean, hours long process. And then once you get in, which starts to feel like a relief, because at least you're not in the cold. You know, you go into kind of like a DMV style room and one by one people would get called. And there were multiple stations. There was sort of a, there was an interview station. There was a fingerprinting station. They took a photograph of you. You try to kind of 
imagine the conversations that are happening between whoever's being interviewed and the person on the other side. And you make your assessments of, oh, that, that officer is a nice guy, and why is that officer yelling at that person? I hope I don't get him, and will my younger brothers know the answers to these questions? It was just a heavy life moment. One of the thoughts that I remember myself having that day, as there was all that confusion in the room and all the, those questions about what's going to happen, all that fear, there was a lawyer that was sitting there volunteering her time, providing as much information as she could to people who were facing these questions, like, am I going to be able to go home tonight? Am I going to be able to, to stay here? my family. And I remember seeing sort of everybody kind of gathering around her and, you know, trying to get a little bit of her time. And I remember thinking that that is so badass. Like I I want to I want to be that. Like a lifeline. Yeah. Okay, midterm plans. Kamal and a lot of other people are hoping the law can be the midterm plan. In other words, that attorneys will be able to protect people legally. But Azadeh Shashahani says people have to be realistic about what courts can accomplish. We can't be relying on courts. Trump, unfortunately, can remake the judiciary. Azadeh was born in Tehran four days after the 1979 revolution. She grew up with war, immigrated to the U.S., became a lawyer and president of the National Lawyers Guild. She was a member of international human rights delegations to Haiti, Honduras, Palestine, Tunisia, Egypt, and Venezuela. In short, she's super qualified to talk about how societies deal with situations just like the one the U.S. is facing. The fight as a whole is led by people's movements, and we as lawyers provide support where we can. I'm kind of surprised. I mean, you were the head of first person of person or woman of color to head the National Lawyers Guild. You have all these tools, you know, legal tools, skills, but yet you're saying we need to rely on movements. Yeah, I mean, politicians never saved us. You know, regardless of who's at the top, regardless of who's at the White House, it is us who can save ourselves. It, but we had movement, uh, like protests, mass protests after the election mm -hmm. that were widely disparaged on the other side and dismissed. How do you make movements effective? Sustainability. I mean, look at what happened at Standing Rock. Uh, they were not discouraged. You know, and that wasn't a one-day protest or two-day protest. That was a sustained protest by indigenous communities and then supporters who came from around the country to deliver a strong message of protecting the water. And they achieved victory. So you're saying, by, you're saying we're going to get to an extreme of movements. I mean, that, that, that is an extreme action that they took. Is that how far you think we're going to have to go? I mean, we have to go as far as we can to stand up for our rights and to protect our communities. For us to really survive, we can't afford to work in silos anymore. We need to be working together. Many people agree that if a new movement is to emerge, the coalition that makes up that movement has to deal with its internal racial divisions. Kalia Abeades with the Pillars Fund, a Chicago-based philanthropic project that supports Muslim nonprofits. Kalia's been coming to these conferences for five years. 
She didn't really feel included, though, until two years ago. A group of black participants said, we cannot ignore racial justice in the immigrant rights conversation. Opal Tometi from Black Lives Matter and maybe six or seven of us went on the stage, and it wasn't disruptive. We went on the stage and encouraged everyone else in the audience to say who they were and that Black Lives Matter, and let, let's affirm this in this space. And mine said, as the granddaughter of Filipino immigrants and the descendant of African slaves and the mother of two black boys and the wife of a black man, Black Lives Matter. And everybody in the room did it. And it was just such an emotional space. And that was the first time I really felt emotionally connected to this conference. So I think we're just starting to have the hard conversations about racial justice within the immigrant rights spaces. We see this within the Muslim community so much. We've got serious racial divides and tensions. We have so far to go. <laughs> How did you understand immigration for yourself coming up? I didn't think about immigration so much growing up. Where did you grow up? In Fresno, California. Okay. I moved from California to Florida when I was 14, and I didn't understand the South. We got off the train in Palatka, Florida, and Palatka was a place I learned later where the black people at football games still sat on the visitor's side. What an impressionable age to go there and have that experience, that jarring experience. It was <laughs> jarring is just the beginning. I didn't fit into a box, I didn't fit into black or white. I was very confusing to a lot of people <laughs> that I met. Did you grow up Muslim? No, I didn't. That's another layer of identity. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. I actually became Muslim after 9-11. Whoa. Yeah. I was 21 when 9-11 happened, and I was already interested in Islam. I was just searching. I was searching for so much in that moment, in that space, being discriminated against and being marginalized was very much a part of the American experience for so many people in this country. And so watching the Muslim community go through that, it broke my heart. I mean, when, when Donald Trump said, you know, the first time that it was publicly talked about the Muslim ban, my six-year-old, his name is Musa, he was like, what? Donald Trump can't ban us. Our family's been here longer than his. <laughs> In one moment, I was really proud, like, yes, keep that defiant spirit. But then at the other hand, I was like, maybe we can work. He's six, but like, we can work on his talking points because it doesn't matter <laughs> like, what, you know, when you enter this country. Like, everybody should be afforded that dignity and humanity. But in that moment, I was like, yes. <laughs> you know? There was a strong contingent of people at the conference who say the new integrated movement will start locally, in the cities that have come out against the Trump administration's policies. Luisa Fernanda Cardona is the deputy director of the city of Atlanta's Office of Immigrant Affairs. I can't change federal law, but I can change how we integrate and how we welcome locally. Luisa's family fled drug violence in Colombia when she was a child and moved to Georgia. I lived undocumented my entire high school career. We didn't talk about it. Our family, I grew up in very south Georgia, and my school was very tense. There was a Confederate flag in my middle school. People stood on different sides of the hallway. And I just say that to explain that when I decided to go to law school, and when I was in D.C., Maryland, where I went to law school, seeing people say there's no such thing as racism 
was very absurd to me. <laughs> I was like, wow, I grew up in a completely different reality. And how that is defining so many laws, so many policies, because my fellow law students became policymakers, became lawyers, and that affects the policy around the world, and it was just very shocking. But it also, it's what drove me to the shame of my parents, so, not shame, but to the sadness of my parents, like, you didn't go to law school to make money. My family calls me the strange one. <laughs> La niña diferente, as they like to say. And so Luisa will do her own thing. So they are just perplexed that I would ever want to work for anybody else. <laughs> but for me, it's, no, I just, I want to be able to share. I know that my parents, because they're the ones who taught me those values, my mom interpreted for women who went to prenatal care. And I would accompany her. I saw lots of births before I was even 18, <laughs> which teaches you a lot. <laughs> my dad owning his own business, when at first he came covered in paint from head to toe and had three newspaper routes just for us to make it by, and then having him own his own business, employ over 60 people, and how he, even now, you know, goes out to community meetings and speaks up. And it's uncomfortable for him because he's like, well, make sure this is the right word for me. They're the ones who inspired that in me. It's very unfortunate that justice is limited to those few who can access that knowledge. I tried to practice immigration law for a little bit while I was in D.C. Immigration judges are a lot nicer, and by a lot I mean almost <laughs> exponentially so. But you hadn't been practicing in no, the South at that but time. but then I came back. Okay, all right. And I attempted to practice. I, I started working for a nonprofit law firm. I will just say it's, it's a completely different immigration court system. Federal law is not applied evenly throughout the country when it comes to immigration. We have the highest denial rate in Atlanta out of any other immigration court, and I was very disheartened by all of it, and I considered maybe I should just go back to D.C. But I knew because of growing up in such a racially tense environment, knowing how little resources existed in the South when I was growing up, New York, L.A., D.C., there's so many resources, there's so many amazing people, and when you think of the immigrant fight and you meet other people, that's where they want to go. But I genuinely felt that to win the civil rights battle for immigrant communities, you need to start in the South because it's the hardest place. <laughs> so you started out talking about the unequal justice in the federal system, but then you go to a mayor's office of a city. So how do you make that jive? How can you be impactful in that role to what you saw before? Well, I feel like I can make a lot bigger impact, actually. Because the immigration court at this moment is so negatively biased towards many immigrants, that policy capacity at a local level, that makes a difference. And I genuinely, I encourage everyone when I meet people from around the country, especially people my age, they're like, oh, I'm gonna go to DC. And like, I'm like, no, come, come do the fight here. <laughs> it does feel sometimes like you're living in a different world than everyone else because state law controls a lot of what we can and cannot do but your impact is so much bigger. We're, we're consistent in the counter-narrative, so when the- state the, or the city? The city to the state. Uh, <laughs> yes, and that's like an overall theme right now, right? It in is. And I think it's, it has a lot to do with locally, we're able to see more directly the impact that immigrants are having in the community. So when the governor came out saying that he would not accept refugees, and the mayor said, we will, being that counter-narrative, 
is what we're here to do. And the mayor has said, when the naysayers are saying no, we need to say yes and welcome louder. We have arrived at the long-term plan. It's basically to build political power. First, by growing the group of elected officials of color, particularly at the national level. Right now, that group is really small. Pramila J. Paul is one of its newest members. She's a former Washington state senator who just became the first Indian American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. I came here for college. My parents had $5,000 in their bank account, and they used the whole thing to send me here. I am happen to be Indian. Can oh, I, can I? <laughs> Daisy sister. They're, I know, they're coming right? out of the woodwork now. Everyone is writing to me. But, and... but this is the question. Daisies in this country are not so much known for, they're the model minority. Yes. So I think that there are more and more of us who recognize our privilege, because as hard as my path was, there are so many people that I've had the privilege of working with over the last 15 years as heading up the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state, one of the largest in the country. And my experience was relatively easy, even as hard as it was. I've been denied a room because of the color of my skin. I've, you know, didn't get my citizenship for 19 years. But the people that I am working with who have just as much talent, just, you know, more courage, more resilience, have not been given some of the things that we were given. And so a lot of my work has been to talk to our South Asian community and say, Listen, we need to be fighting not just for ourselves. We need to be fighting for everybody to have all of the rights that we get to have. And these democratic values, the values of this country, we have to make sure we protect those. You can't just come to this country, take what it gives you, but then say, okay, I'm doing great. Now I'm just going to go back and do my thing. You actually have to fight for other people. How did you learn about that yourself? I have been fortunate to be with so many great leaders over the years. I was really incredibly fortunate to work on the Immigrant Workers' Freedom Ride back in 2003, Reverend Joseph Lowry. I remember he said, we may have all come over here on different ships, but we're all in the same damn boat now. And really thinking about the civil rights movement. After 9-11, I remember an early meeting with Niseis, Japanese Americans who had been interned, and just hearing those stories and recognizing that where we are is because of so many people who have fought for these things for so long. And the reality is to not acknowledge what people have gone through, what they've fought for, what they've won, and what they've lost really denies us the ability to develop good policy and good organizing strategy for the future. And then also to build the ladder for the next for the next folks that come along. And so when I left the state Senate, I just resigned my seat two days ago, and it was an interim, it had to be an interim appointment because my term is for four years, so there's two more years. But I recruited a Latina organizer, strong, fierce woman, because I'm the only woman of color in the state Senate, and I was not going to allow my seat to go back to somebody who doesn't bring those same qualities to the state Senate. So she just got appointed yesterday, and she is the second only Latina ever to be sworn into the Washington State Senate, and that's why it's so important that we do what we do. It's not just to look good in a picture because there's a different color of skin, it's because Our experience as women, as people of color, as immigrants, as organizers, they shape 
legislation that we propose, they shape hearings that we listen to, they shape the way we listen to testimony. When somebody comes before me in a committee and testifies, I have a very different reaction to some of those people because of my experience. And that is incredibly valuable in really representing everybody in this country. Um, Hindu? Muslim? Uh, born Hindu and raised as a Hindu and still can say a lot of my prayers. People always say to me, why did you fight for Muslims after 9-11? You're not Muslim. Why did you fight for Sikh Americans? You're not Sikh. Why did you fight for Latinas and undocumented immigrants? You're not Latina or undocumented. And to me, we're human, and we, we're not defined by just one, you know, standing up for our own identity. We have to stand up for justice. But in doing that, are you aware of, or are you hoping to send an international message? Because I'm sure folks in India are claiming you right now. Totally, and I love to be claimed. I mean, I'm very proud to be Desi. But I don't think that being Indian and being tied to your identity means that you shun the responsibilities towards other groups. This is not an oppression Olympics. What happens when you're one of the only few? Are there additional pressures that come with Always. that? Always. Do you have to represent for everyone? I mean, Always. I think it's it's hard, you know. There, there are times when you don't want to be the only one and you're like, oh my God, do I have to say something again? Because this isn't even what I wanted to talk about. I may have wanted to talk about economic policy, but somebody says something that has no understanding of racial equity or gender equity or just misses the point, not even as offensive, but completely misses the point. And you think, oh, I'm going to have to say something because nobody else is. But you also have to pick your battles. You know, if you took on every single thing, you'd have no energy left. And so part of it has been to really understand when should I speak out, when when do I not want to, and to trust myself a little on that and to recognize that I can't hold that basket for everybody. And part of what I have to do is develop champions. And so in the state Senate, I had a couple of really terrific colleagues, white guys. And there were times when I would just say, I need you to speak up on this because I need a white guy to say this. And they would. Did you make a conscious decision at some point that advocacy wasn't effective enough and you had to become a, a, a lawmaker? It wasn't so much that I felt advocacy wasn't effective enough, but I felt like there was this huge gap and that we were ceding power. I think advocacy is incredibly important, but where you do it is also important. And we can't just do it on the outside. I mean, I am not somebody who has wanted to run for office since I was five years old. I have always seen myself as somebody that was going to fight on the outside. So this is different. The second way of growing political power is to create more voters. I'll tell you from a, from a very, how can I put this, a very ethnic perspective, oh, I'm going to go to the 8 million Mexicans that are permanent residents of the United States. That means they're still nationals of Mexico, right? They're still citizens of Mexico, but they got green cards. And they're all eligible today, as we speak, to apply to become a citizen. I'm gonna tell them, let's apply to become a citizen. Let's get ready. This is an elder statesman of the immigration movement, Chicago Congressman Luis Gutierrez. My thinking is that I'll skip the inauguration, but I'll get ready that day because I want to make sure I have the best gloves, the best shoe warmers, the best head cover, the best insulation possible. And I want to get ready that day so that the next day I can start marching. 
Does it have to be protest as opposed to compromise? Or can you do both? You know, these are, I mean, Donald Trump has said, and they want to, you see, here's the problem. Everybody wants to normalize Donald Trump. So they say, oh, Luis, you should be more respectful. How do you expect me to respect a man that doesn't respect fundamentally the rights of women in this country? I'm not going to participate in this normalization of Donald Trump. And if he wants to get my respect, then he has to act, right? He has to do things to garner my respect. But when he says making America great again, I know he wants to turn the clock back so that, you know, women are in the kitchen, right? And, uh, you know, black people are quiet, right? And subservient. Gay people, closet. And immigrants, just let us continue to exploit you. So all I'm trying to say is the America that I love is America I'm going to continue to fight for. You use every vehicle that you have that is peaceful and nonviolent. While Donald Trump is president during the next four years, every year a million Latinos will turn 18. That's four million. I got to get them registered to vote. So I'm going to go try to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Does that mean I compromise? Yes. But I can't compromise my values. And now for the final category, the ultra long-term plans. There's just one actually, and it can be summed up in one word, millennials. Several of the people you've heard in this episode are millennials. Stephanie, Christina, Louisa, Kalia, and Tara Rugvier of the National Partnership for New Americans. Tara says that isn't a coincidence. I think it's huge because this battle that we're about to go fight or that we've been fighting is not gonna be over in 2018 or 2020. It's actually going to be a much longer fight than that. Millennials may eventually be the stewards of whatever unified movement is taking shape now, she says. But the stereotypical millennial tool, social media, won't be enough. I have been a little frustrated with what I've heard from friends and peers about sort of how we can be involved these days. Like the liking, you know, people talk about this all the time, but like liking something on Facebook is not voting. Like, let's not pretend that that's actually participating in the democratic process. It's important. It's maybe base building. Maybe it's some component of movement building. But, like, that's not going to change our reality um, unless we, you know, channel that, tie it to people's stories, like really mobilize human beings to move their human bodies and open their human mouths and talk to other human beings. <laughs> Tara says if young people want to help, they should get a job like hers. I wish that more young people had the perspective to know that these types of jobs and careers existed. I have like turned myself into a, an evangelist for public service and organizing. I go back to my college all the time to talk about it. Because I just think if you are given everything in the world and more in terms of your education and your upbringing and your exposure to different ideas and different people, you have a responsibility, right? Like I'm not the first one to say this, but I think if you can take a risk, take a risk. If that risk is like organizing for progressive causes, I really think that this is the moment, like this should be the moment that radicalizes my generation, our generation. I, I hope it is. And you know, the moral arc of justice is long. Uh, the moral arc is long, but it bends towards justice. Anyway, MLK was much more eloquent than I am, <laughs> which is why no one else should try to like subtweet him. But here we are. <laughs> that Dr. King quote is, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. 
He said it in a speech where he urged people to push past the dark moments, the desolation, the indifference, and continue fighting for all humanity to be recognized as a brotherhood. This week in his farewell address, Barack Obama echoed that thought. Hearts must change. They won't change overnight. Social attitudes oftentimes take generations to change. But if our democracy is to work the way it should in this increasingly diverse nation, then each one of us need to try to heed the advice of a great character in American fiction, Atticus Finch, who said, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. For blacks and other minority groups, that means tying our own very real struggles for justice to the challenges that a lot of people in this country face. Not only the refugee or the immigrant or the rural poor or the transgender American, but also the middle-aged white guy who from the outside may seem like he's got advantages, but has seen his world upended by economic and cultural and technological change. We have to pay attention. And listen. So everybody's got work to do, Obama was saying. And that reminded me of something Emmy Lou Harris told me in Nashville. She's a multi-Grammy winning country music star who spoke at the conference. She says people are just scared of immigrants and refugees. I think there's a great fear and I think they're legitimate fears. We just have to fight them and try to rise above it. But we can't just you know, blame people for the fact that they have those fears, but but we have to try to overcome them and help each other overcome them. Obama seemed to hint, though, that for white people who don't get on board, the combined forces of all minorities would have something of an ace in the hole. If we're unwilling to invest in the children of immigrants just because they don't look like us, we will diminish the prospects of our own children because those brown kids will represent a larger and larger share of America's workforce. If this is the start of a new civil rights movement, America's demographics might make this one very different from the last. This movement has the ultimate backup plan. Just outnumber them. The conference in Nashville could have been the beginning of a new unified movement. Maybe it was. We probably won't know for a long time. I'll be watching to see how all the plans play out. If there's something I should know, that everyone should know about how things are developing, let me know. Tweet me, at Rupa Shinoy, or find the Otherhood page on Facebook. Until then, thanks very much for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Le sous-bouchon